Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales, and I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, if you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, I would like to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Uh, we are in the middle of a series that we're calling Why? And um, this is a series based on questions submitted uh, by you and others over the, over the course of the summer. And we're taking about five weeks or so to, um, I've kind of taken all the questions that were submitted and packaged them together. And we are, uh, I, I'm attempting to uh, open up the Bible and show you how the Bible uh, responds to some of these questions. And I just wanted to take a minute to talk about why we're doing this series. Um, the, the reason we're doing this series where we're saying, hey, bring your questions and let's talk about them together is because this is what vulnerability looks like. Um, we've said that we want to be, one of the things that we want to characterize our church is vulnerability. And being vulnerable means being willing to kind of say, I don't have it all together. I don't know. I don't get it. Help me out. Um, that's what vulnerability looks like. Every week when I, uh, when I uh, stand up here and talk, I never assume that everybody agrees with everything I'm saying. In fact, um, the, the reality is that I don't always agree with everything that I'm saying. Um, sometimes I'm saying something that I believe is true, but I don't in my heart actually believe it yet. And being a community and being vulnerable means bringing our questions and bringing our doubts uh, and talking about them together and opening God's word and seeing what God has to say and wrestling through those realities together and actually still being gracious to one another regardless of where we all kind of fall out on everything. So that's what we're doing. Let me tell you the question that we're looking at today. Uh, last week we looked at the question of hell and how can a, a God who is a God of love send anyone to hell? And so if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go to um, the website, look at the podcast and you can check that out. Um, if you go to resoc.life and click on media, you'll find it there. But this morning, we're looking at sort of the other, in some ways, the other side of that question, which is uh, heaven. Um, so the question is, what happens to Christians after they die? A couple more specific questions that I'm rolling into this. Uh, is heaven ready for us to move in? And do Christians go to the heaven that Jesus went to prepare for us? Uh, th those last two questions are... Um, sort of responding to specific things that Jesus said in the Bible. In John 14, Jesus said, um, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So is that, is that place that, that Jesus has gone to prepare for us, is it ready for us yet? Um, is that where Christians go when they die? Um, the other question I think is in the background is, is something Jesus said on the cross. If you remember, um, Jesus was on the cross, and on either side of him there 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 are two criminals that are um, hanging on the cross, and one of them is mocking Jesus and hurling hurling insults at Jesus, and he's saying, you know, if you really are the Son of God, then just save us all. And the the one on the other side of Jesus. Um, sees the way Jesus is suffering and dying and is convinced that he actually is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that man says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded and said, Truly I say to you, today 
you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. So, um, what happens to Christians after they die? Is heaven ready for us? Are we going to that paradise? Are we going, has Jesus finished preparing uh, the home that he has gone ahead to prepare for us? So, I'm going to read for us Revelation chapter 21, uh, starting in verse 1. And so, if you would stand with me as we give our attention to God's word. You know, when we go to um, a wedding, when the bride comes in, something important is happening, and so we stand up. And when we go to a baseball game, when we sing the national anthem, something important is happening, and so we stand up. And so it's been our practice at Resurrection SC that when we read God's word, that we stand together. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We'll stop there. Will you pray with me? <coughs> God, as we look at this question, um, I'm sure for many of us, there's talking about the future uh, breeds um, sort of intrigue and curiosity, and others of us are skeptical, um, or we're confused, or we think it's irrelevant. But God, I pray that you would break through whatever is going on in our hearts this morning, that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, to love him more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. In 1971, John Lennon released what would become his, probably his most well-known successful song. John Lennon, um, of Beatles fame, released this song, Imagine. It's a song that I don't think it's possible for you to be in this room and not have heard the song Imagine many, many times in your life. And the first verse of Imagine says this. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living life for t- or living for today. Was the would have been in the middle of the Vietnam War, and um, John Lennon is uh, expressing what is a popular idea in his time and still in ours, and that is that this is all there is. This world, what we currently experience is all there is. There's no, um, you can't take a spaceship up into the sky and get to heaven. There's no hell if you were to dig down below us. Um, This world is all there is. And he's saying until we realize that this world is the only world we've got, we'll never actually uh, live meaningful lives in this world. We'll never take care of the world that we've been given. We'll never, um, you know, be the kind of loving, peaceful people for the sake of our neighbors that we want to be. He's saying that if people think there's a future world of heaven and and maybe of hell, 
then they'll think that their actions don't matter, that heaven is sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card. And so what you do now doesn't really matter um, because heaven gets everybody off the hook. And so he, um, it's often said, we won't be good stewards of the environment. We'll use our beliefs to oppress people who are different than we are. But if we're ever going to have peace in this world, we've got to learn, or in John Lennon's word, we've got to imagine living life for today. If we know that today is all that we have, then, you know, if today is what we've got, we want to make it a good day, right? And so we'll actually invest in taking care of the environment. We'll care for one another if we know that today is all we've got. There's a phrase that I think captures this that you've probably heard. Um, it's a phrase to talk about somebody that, that says that so-and-so is so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Um, you know, this person's got their head in the clouds. Uh, it's, a, it's a not so subtle critique, I think, especially of Christianity. But the Bible's claim that you can be so heavenly minded that, um, well, the, the, the statement that you can be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good is contradicted by what the Bible says about heaven and the future. The Bible would say that it's those who are the most heavenly minded who are actually the most earthly good. Um, I think John Lennon, <laughs> if I can be so bold, was wrong. And, um, and yet I think that there, I think he was, um, he's expressing something that's a misunderstanding, it's a critique of Christianity, and yet I think it's a very understandable critique. Okay, I think he was wrong, but I completely understand why he said it. And I'm not even sure it was such a bad thing that he said it. Um, I think his critique is understandable, even though I think it's misguided. And the reason that I think that it's understandable is because I think most Christians alive today have not understood what the Bible is actually teaching us about the reality of uh, what happens after Christians die. Um, and I think that... The Bible, if we actually come to see, which I hope we're going to do this morning, if we come to terms a little bit more fully with what the Bible actually says about what happens after death, that we will actually become the sort of people who are the most earthly good. We will see that it's those who are the most heavenly minded that are the most earthly good. So what I want you to see this morning is that, um, what I want you to see is what the Bible says about life after death for Christians. And what I want to show you is that um, what the Bible says about life after death, it gives both a reason and a motivation for doing earthly good, for kind of being the best citizens of earth in light of what we believe the future holds. Uh, there's a reason and a motivation. So the first thing I want to show you is that uh, what the Bible says about the future gives us a reason for doing good here on earth. Um, let me start with this question. If you're a Christian, and I'm not assuming that everybody in the room would claim to be a Christian, but if you are a Christian, let me ask you this. What are you here for? Um, not like this morning. <laughs> Why are you in this room? But, but like what, what is the purpose of the, you know, the 30, 40, 50 year stretch of life that you are in the middle of. Um, you know, most of us who are Christians are pretty, you know, have some uh, comfortableness with talking about um, things that have happened in our past. You know, we, we know how to talk about this time of maybe of an experience of becoming a Christian. And uh, we talk about God coming into our lives and God transforming our lives. 
God bringing a meaning and beauty and purpose into our lives. And um, that's a wonderful experience. And uh, God has come into my life and he's transformed me so that I want to read the Bible, I want to pray, I want to worship God, I want to um, forsake my sin, I want to turn my back on these self-destructive habits that used to characterize me. And that's wonderful. And, uh, and we know how to talk, you know, not all of us with exceeding, uh, you know, greater degrees of comfortable, what's the word, comfortableness? Is that the word, comfortability? I don't know what the word is. Um, if my wife doesn't know, I can say it, so it's fine. Um, you know, that, that's something that's happened in the past, right? And then there's this idea that, okay, in the future, um, I don't know, maybe I, maybe I don't understand all the details of exactly how it's all going to play out, but I have this sense that Jesus promised that if I believe in him, that, he, that I'm going to get to live forever in heaven. And again, I, maybe I don't know how to explain how that's all going to play itself out, but I know that the, there was this experience in the past that was pretty great, and I know that there's some vague hope that the future um, is going to be good. Or at least not awful. But what do I do now? Right? The starting point, great. The future, awesome. But what about the majority of my life, which I'm in the middle of living right now? What am I supposed to do with that? And I think if most of us, if we're honest, probably don't have like a great answer to that question. And um, I think most of us would say something like, as long as I'm living a, you know, a pretty moral life, then the rest is pretty much up to me. Um, you know, there's some things that God has made clear. It seems like God wants me to be a part of the church, and so, you know, I'm sort of doing that. And he, like, it's, I mean, people tell me that he really wants me to tell other people about him, and I'm not super comfortable with that, so I don't do that that much. <laughs> um, but when it comes to everything else, you know, how I raise my family, what kind of work I do, how I spend my money, what I do with my free time, as long as I'm not being immoral, or at least as long as I'm not being like that, I mean, come on, right? Like, at least I'm not being that immoral. Everything else is kind of up to me. And um, as long as I'm being a moral person, I can kind of do what I want, make myself happy, take care of my family, what's wrong with that? Okay, what's wrong with that is that it's, it doesn't work. <laughs> um, I, I talk to people all the time that are doing that, and the overwhelming sense I get is that not that like not that like we're um, just exceedingly unhappy, but it's like oh it's fine. How are things going? Not oh, fine, you know. It's not great, not terrible. It's just fine. And I think if we if we begin to understand what the Bible says about heaven or about the future for Christians, then we begin to see why. That way of living, the, uh, as long as I don't break any big you know, rules, I can just kind of do whatever I want. Why that doesn't actually lead to a life of happiness. Uh, we have to understand what the Bible actually says about heaven. So what does the Bible say about heaven? Well, according to the Bible, uh, let me just kind of break it down really simply here. The Bible says that when you die, if you belong to Christ, you go to be with him. That's what it said uh, in Luke 23, the thief on the cross. Uh, today you will be with me. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, what he's saying is that when you die, you go to be with Jesus. And being with Jesus is just the most uh, wonderful, fulfilling experience that you can imagine. And this time in paradise, it will be a time of rest 
and it will be a time of delight. But the Bible actually says very little about, let's just use the word paradise, or that might be the place to, to use the word heaven. Uh, it says very little about what that is like and what our experience of living in that time will be like. Uh, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about the soul, but I think this is probably the place to talk about, you know, at death, the soul and body are separated and the soul goes to paradise to be with Jesus. But it doesn't say very, the Bible doesn't say very much about what happens there because what the Bible is really interested in talking about is what happens next. Okay, so the title I've given to this sermon is Life After Death and then Life After That. Because what the Bible is saying is that there is this intermediary time where we are souls that are in paradise with God. But what the Bible is really excited about talking about is that after this time of rest, God will raise the dead. There will be a physical resurrection. This is why the resurrection of Jesus was so surprising to the first Christians, the, well, the Jews that followed him, right? Because nobody expected that the resurrection would happen in the middle of human history. But the Bible is saying that like Jesus has been raised physically from the dead in the past, that our bodies will be raised again and our soul will be reunited with our body. And we will inhabit a new heaven and a new earth. So did you notice when I was reading Revelation 21, it doesn't talk about a time when Christians go up into the clouds. What it says is that um, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and the new Jerusalem, heaven, will actually come down to earth. And so what the Bible is saying is this, really simply. You die. If you belong to Jesus, your soul goes to be with him until the time when God raises everyone from the dead. And, then, and at that point, the heaven that Jesus, the, the new creation that Jesus has gone to prepare uh, will be fully realized. And heaven will come down to earth and we will live with God. The Bible is saying that God is making a renewed earth that will be in, in some ways, I mean, it's a physical place. It's not angels and harps and clouds. In some ways, it will be very much like our current earth, and in other ways, it will be very different because it will be better. Um, bodies won't get old and decay and break down. There will be no injustice. It will be teeming with beauty, and heaven will come down to earth. So what the Bible is saying is that heaven is not this place up in the clouds where souls live a disembodied experience, but heaven, um, what the Bible would lead us to believe is that heaven is not so much a place as it is the current dimension of God's present reality. Okay, heaven is not a place so much as it is where God is. Um, that's what the Bible says over and over in so many different ways. Heaven is the place where God is. Heaven is the experience of being in the presence of God. And the ultimate plan for Christians is to live on a physical, renewed, beautiful, glorious earth. And a heaven will come down to earth. And it will be wonderful. And we'll have bodies that don't break down, and we will have good work to do. It'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And that truth, uh, for thousands of years, was incredibly motivating to Christians. Um, Christians of a previous age uh, didn't talk so much about going to heaven after we died. Uh, they talked about the Christian hope. And this, this concept of the Christian hope is this thing that will happen in the future but informs the way that we live in the present. Christians in the past um, believe that the truth about heaven and earth 
uh, filled Christians with a reason for being the most earthly good. Um, there's all kinds of ways, examples I could give you to illustrate that, but let me just give you one example. Rodney Stark is uh, he's a, uh, like a professor, he's a sociologist, and he wrote a book in the mid-90s called The Rise of Christianity. Uh, Rodney Stark, as far as I know, is not a, a, a professing Christian. He's not writing with an agenda to like uh, enhance the history of Christianity or anything like that. But Rodney Stark wrote a book in the mid-90s called The Rise of Christianity, in which as a sociologist and kind of a historian, he was trying to answer the question of what accounts for the growth of Christianity in its first like three to 400 years. Um, you know, at the time of Jesus' death, almost nobody, globally speaking, followed Jesus, right? And by the, let's say, let's, uh, you know, mid-fourth century, um, Christianity has become the dominant worldview and religion of the Roman Empire, eventually overthrows the Roman Empire and outlasts it, right? How in the world did Christianity go from this, like, obscure, backwater religion um, into the most dominant worldview and religion in the Roman Empire. And um, Rodney Stark talks about um, maybe four or five reasons for that. But one of the main reasons that he gives is that the early Christians' understanding of heaven, or the new heavens and the new earth, it led them to seek the good of the world that they presently lived in. And Rodney Stark talks about there were two major epidemics that took place in the middle of this time period. Um, one in, in uh, 165 AD and one in uh, AD 251. And uh, I mean, these are historical events. Um, two epidemics that took place in the Roman Empire, uh, each resulting in like, um, you know, essentially the extermination of, of about a third of the population. Now picture a third of the population. So if you look at the person on your left and you look at the person on your right, like one of the three of you is gone, okay? One third of the population died twice in less than 100 years. And um, we don't know what it was. Some people think it might be smallpox. Um, they didn't know what it was at the time. They certainly didn't know how to cure it. They didn't know where it came from, but the one thing that they knew about it was that you got it from people who were sick. And so what would you do if you know that there's this disease killing one third of the people, and then if you're around other people, you're very likely to get it yourself. Well, what you would do is if you had the opportunity to, you would leave, right? Run for the hills. And who, who could afford to leave? It was the wealthy, it's the elite, it's the doctors, like the people with the resources to actually help in the middle of this epidemic are the ones leaving the cities, heading for the hills to try to save themselves. But Rodney Stark says that Christians knew what was going on, but they also knew that today is not all we have, and so they stayed. And so when the elites, the doctors, the people with the resources to bring health and healing you know, in, in modest ways were leaving the cities, the Christians were actually running into the cities. And they're ministering to the sick. And this did two things. The first thing it did is it gave credibility to their message. Um, it took ordinary Christians and it made them abnormally brave. It wasn't that Christians were like superheroes. Um, it's that the gospel takes an ordinary person and enables them to do things that would require an extraordinary amount of bravery from a similar person who isn't a Christian. 
So it took Christians and made them abnormally brave and therefore gave credibility to the gospel. But the second thing that this did is that when Christians stayed and they cared for the poor, um, I mean, if you're sick and you have no help, the chances of you dying increase. But if somebody stays and cares for you, then you have a better chance of survival. And those people who survived had been ministered to by Christians, and many of them converted after they, if they recovered. And the result was that the Roman Empire went from about 6 to 8% Christian to about 50% Christian in 150 years. I, get, I know that doesn't, maybe that doesn't really compute for, I mean, that is like phenomenal, phenomenal growth. Um, 6 to 8% Christian to 50% Christian in 150 years. Christians, because they believed in heaven, because they didn't believe that today is all we have, they could run into a place where everybody's trying to get out of in order to bring hope and healing because they knew that this wasn't the end. Because they believed not just that they'd be souls floating in the clouds, because they believed in the resurrection of the body, they believed that caring for the physical, real needs of those who are suffering was important. And because they believed in a God who promises to renew all things, they cared um, not just about the spiritual good of the dying, but their physical care as well. Belief in heaven made them the most earthly good when everyone who was living for today was running for the hills. Okay, now I don't know how that lands with you. Um, I think it's a really compelling reason for understanding how um, belief in what the Bible says about the future, the Christian hope, actually uh, gives us tons of reasons to be very earthly-minded today. Um, it gives us lots of good reasons, but I have to say that if that's the only thing we have, we might say, wow, that's really interesting. Well, that's really, like, inspirational, but I don't know. Like, if everybody's sick, I'm out of here. Um, I doubt that that alone would really change us. But the Bible's teaching about the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and a new earth, it gives us, not only does it give us all kinds of reasons to work for the good of this world, it also gives us motivation. Okay? It doesn't just give us reasons to say, wow, that's, fat, that's interesting. I mean, if you think about it, it's the best tactic that the Christians in the what, second and third centuries could have adopted. But if they had adopted it as a tactic, if somebody had said, hey, every time there's a famine everybody, or an epidemic, everybody's leaving, let's run in. You wouldn't, like, I could never convince the however many of us in this room there are to do that, let alone thousands and thousands and millions of people, right? Even though it would be the best possible strategy. But Christianity gives us more than just a reason. It gives us a motivation. It gives us a motivation for doing earthly good. And what I want to try to convey to you is this, that the Christian hope means that our future will be stunningly beautiful and that we will finally have a home and that there will finally be satisfaction to all of our longing. That's what the Christian hope promises. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, the Christian hope means that our future will be stunningly beautiful. Uh, I, like many of you, I've been a lot of beautiful places in the world. Um, Zion National Park is one of my just favorite places on earth. Um, the mountains, the ocean, I mean so many just stunningly beautiful places. And God says that they won't even compare with the beauty that we will behold when he finishes his work. C.S. Lewis, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I love 
and I can I think it captures this. I can hardly get my head around what he's saying here, uh, but let me read this to you. It might not make sense, but let, let me try to. I'll read it and I'll see if I can explain it. C.S. Lewis said, "We do not want merely to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words." We want to be united with the beauty that we see. We want to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, and to become a part of it. I, um, I explained this this way, I think, here uh, maybe a year ago, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again. The only way I can think of to explain this to you is to talk about skiing. I love skiing. I love to ski. Um, for six years, our family lived in Salt Lake City, and uh, I got to ski um, for six years as often as I was able to. I haven't skied in the two years since we left. And uh, I love to ski. It's beautiful. It's so quiet. I love how just the swish of how quiet it is. Um, it's soft. I love to be in the mountains, the outdoors. It's stunningly beautiful. But uh, one of the things that I love about skiing is it's one of the very few things in my life that I can just do without really thinking about it. Um, and Ashley and I have discovered this because she would, uh, like, Adam, I'm a decent, I'm a pretty good skier. I'm a decent skier. That doesn't make any sense to say that in the context of this. I'm a pretty good skier, okay? I'm not bragging. It's just true. Just deal with it, okay? And so we would be skiing, and Ashley would be like, can you teach me how to ski? And I would try to explain some, I mean, she knows how to ski, but, you know, can you help me? And I would try to explain it, and we finally realized, I'm like, I just don't, I can't explain it to you. Like, I don't really know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I just do it, and it's natural, and it's easy. And so I got to do that um, as often as I was able to for six years. And in those six years, I can think of maybe a handful of days that were just perfect. Um, powder days, nobody on the mountain, uh, just beautiful, wonderful. Like I was there when the lift opened. I was the last one off the mountain. And of those days I can remember that were perfect, I never once left saying, yeah, that was enough. Every single time I left going, ah, but tomorrow it's going to be all tracked out. It's not going to be as good. Um, never, never, never was satisfied. Even the best days left me hungry. And I know it sounds weird to say this, but I think in light of the, like the, what C.S. Lewis is saying, it's like somehow I want to take that thing that I love and eat it. I want to get it in me. I don't want it to be just something that I can do and that I have done and that I have memories of doing and then being great but still even hungry. I want it to actually satisfy. And what the Bible is saying about the Christian hope is that one day a door will open and your beautiful tomorrow will be today and you will be satisfied. You'll be satisfied. Revelation tells us that one day we will be home that we'll have a new home, and one day we will know that it is our home because when we get there, Jesus is there. And that's what makes it our home. And I don't know how that sounds to you. Um, you know, sometimes people have put the, uh, the question like this, you know, it's incredibly narrow-minded of you to think that only Christians are going to go to heaven. Only people who believe in Jesus but what the Bible says is that the reason it's heaven is because Jesus is there. And so it's only people who want to be with Jesus who want to be in heaven. Because what makes heaven heaven and what makes heaven our home and what satisfies us in heaven is that we're in the presence of Jesus. 
And again, I don't know how that sounds, but the last thing that it will be is boring because the Bible doesn't talk about heaven being like a lecture or a classroom or some sort of like remedial um, thing where you've got to finally figure out how to get your life together. But the, the metaphor that the Bible uses over and over again for the ultimate future of those who belong to Jesus is a party. It's a wedding party. And it says that Jesus will relate to his church in the same way that a husband relates to his bride. What the Bible would have us believe is that all of human history is moving towards a party that's about meeting Jesus. That's the future. Um, The future hope for Christians is that you will be known, that there will be a table that will be filled and overflowing with food and with wine, and that there is a place with your name on it, a place reserved just for you. And we will see God face to face. We will be known. We will know him as he knows us. And it will be beautiful and it will be wonderful. And you will finally be home when you see him face to face. I remember when one of my sons was just a baby before he could even talk. Uh, before I could, uh, you know, before he could tell me that he loved me or respond to me in any way. And I remember looking at this little guy and just, you know, I would look at him and smile and say, I love you. And he couldn't say anything, but his whole face would light up. And what the Bible is, is saying is that that is what you will feel like when you finally see God face to face and you know that you are home. In Revelation 1, the beginning of the book of Revelation The Apostle John says, I saw the face of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, as he's been transformed, as he's glorified in heaven, and his face shone like fire. I saw Jesus' face, and it terrified me. I fell down. I was dead. But here at the end of the book, he's saying that one day the face that shines like the sun will look at us, and will be like the baby who sees the face of his parent and is overjoyed. And you will know that you are finally home. And the reason that I think that this is not just interesting information, but the reason that this is so powerfully motivating for us is because what all of this means for us um, is that heaven is the antidote for the fear of missing out. And I've been thinking about if this, this week I've been thinking about if this is an overstatement or not. And I don't think this is an overstatement. I think there are a few things in 2017 that control the way we live as much as the fear of missing out. Um, I, I don't know about you. I'm like, I'm 37. I'm like approaching 40. I am um, at a point in my life where like, I am so much less confident that things are going to change in my life for the better. And I don't mean that like in a super negative way. Like I, I really like my life. But what I mean is in my 20s and my teens, I had this sense that like one day, I think, I think we all feel like this, like life will begin one day. And someday, you know, a couple of years ago, I woke up and I'm like mid 30s and I'm like, oh, that life that I've always been waiting to start, like I'm doing it now. Um, and, and it's not bad, but it doesn't feel like I've arrived yet. And I think as a teenager and in my 20s, it was easy to be like, well, when that life finally comes, and it feels like I'm living this life that is so much more fulfilling, that I won't be as angry, uh, that I'll be a kinder person, that I'll be a more patient person, that I'll be a more gentle person. 
and that just isn't happening yet. Um, and in my 30s, I'm realizing that that's probably not just going to change. And it's easy for this sense to set in that my life is not exactly going the way that I thought it would. I mean, it's not bad at all, but it's not like, oh yes, I have arrived and I know that everything I do is wonderful and meaningful and so therefore I don't want for things anymore. And I'm angsty because I feel like I'm missing out. And the reality is that if you're going to live the kind of life that in some ways in your head you would like to live, you're going to miss out on things. Um, you know, if you were to, like the hope that John Lennon is expressing in his song, that like we could stop this war that's never going to end if people just didn't believe that there was a heaven or a hell or countries or possessions, then like there would be peace, right? That's what John Lennon believes. And nobody's ever going to actually live like that. Um, you're never going to be a generous person who cares for others and makes a positive difference in the world without missing out on some things in life, right? And so we don't become those kinds of people because we don't because of what we'd have to miss out on. And if you're going to live the kind of life that God calls you to live as a Christian, it will, of course, like everybody knows this, it, you will miss out on things. Um, you will miss out on things in this life. Um, I mean, just think, like, you're never going to be generous with your money if you're afraid of missing out. Um, you're never going to give away the kind of resources that the Bible would lead you to believe you should give away. Um, because If you're afraid that doing so would make, mean that you're going to miss out on living in the house that you really want to live in. Or you're never going to be generous with your money if you're, because you're afraid that doing so would cause you to miss out on the kinds of vacations that you really want to enjoy. Or uh, we're never going to use our time the way that um, the Bible would sort of require us to do if we're afraid of missing out. Um, you know, when Jesus was asked, what, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But we're never going to dedicate the time that would be required to love God and his people if we're afraid of missing out. Um, or if we're afraid that doing so would require that our kids miss out. And so we cram our lives full of movement and activity, and we don't have time to love God or his people. We don't have time to love our neighbors. And we think, like, that's, the, that's like the trump card. Like, oh, yeah, I would love to do that, but I just don't have time. But you do have time. You have all the time in the world, literally, is what the Bible is telling us. Because what the Bible is saying... Um, is that the Christian hope means that you will not actually miss out. Um, that, that you will go on living in a physical body with great work to do and a world that is full of justice and beauty and meaning and significance. And you'll have all the time in the world to enjoy and experience and you are not going to miss out. There is no one who will sit down at the banquet wedding banquet of the Lamb and say, I'm glad that I'm finally here, but you know, I, I have some regrets. I wish I'd taken one more vacation. Nobody will ever say that. There will be no regrets. One day, heaven will come down to earth and Jesus will gather his people and you will finally be satisfied. All of human history is moving towards a party that's about meeting Jesus. And one day, you will find yourself at a party, a feast at a table, 
where there is a place specifically reserved for you. And God will be there. And you will sit down and you will gaze upon the most beautiful face that you have ever seen in your life. And you will finally be home. Can you, can you imagine what that would be like? Living as a Christian now, the irony, I think, of John Lennon's song is that imagine is really the word to use. Um, living as a Christian now means learning to imagine what that future world would be like. Um, not just waiting around to get into heaven. It means living now in light of that future. Living now with the imagination of what the future Christian hope will entail for us. Let me give you an example of how that works. Um, why do you go to the gym? Um, not all of us go to the gym. You can tell by looking at me that I don't spend a lot of time in the gym. But, um, you know, let's just say theoretically you are a person who likes to work out. Why do you do that? Well, I think there's like maybe a couple superficial answers that aren't bad, but they're like, they're superficial, meaning like, I like working out because of the way it makes me look, and I like working out because of the way it makes me feel. And that's fine. But I think that there's probably a deeper reason why people work out or why people eat healthy. And um, it's because there will come a time when you will need the results of your present workout. Um, there may be some emergency in the future um, that will require you to flex muscles that you have not developed unless you're actually working out. Or it might just be age, right? That if you want to have you know, a certain quality of life as you age, that you need to begin flexing muscles in the present that you could probably get by without just fine in the present, but you will need them at some point in the future. Does that, does that make sense? We flex muscles now because we might need them later. But what the Bible says is that heaven is a future physical reality that is characterized by justice, by beauty, by community, by being in the presence of Jesus, where we will be finally satisfied. And if that's your future, Jesus is calling you to begin flexing muscles now that you may not need until the Christian hope becomes the Christian reality. Now, what would that actually look like? Um, there's a lot of different forms that that could look like. Um, it does not specifically mean that you've got to stop what you're doing and become a missionary and move to the other side of the world. It doesn't mean that you have to become a pastor or work in full-time ministry, though for some of us it does mean that. It doesn't necessarily mean that. But it certainly means more than just doing whatever you want to make yourself happy as long as you don't break any of the morality rules. Um, it means beginning to imagine what your work, what your life, what your neighboring would look like if that future hope is real. And um, I'm, I'm just going to give you one example. This is an example that I think will probably not be what you expected to, to hear. But um, I was in Atlanta for a conference a couple of years ago, and I went with some friends to a brewery. And we did a tour of this brewery called Monday Night Brewing, and we got to meet the owners. And uh, because we were all a bunch of pastors there, these guys began to tell us that the reason that they started Monday Night Brewing is because they believed in the future resurrection and the renewal of heaven and earth. Now you might say, what? <laughs> like, what? You're saying that 
Flexing my muscles as a Christian now might mean opening a, opening a brewer. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because listen to how I just described the Christian hope. It's a future physical reality that is characterized by justice, beauty, community, Jesus, and finally being satisfied. And these three men were in this Bible study together where they're like, there's nothing for us to do together as guys to build a relationship. And so they started brewing beer together in the garage. And it grew and more guys wanted to come and be a part of it. And so they built a, they started a brewery and they built out a space where they invite people to come and, uh, and, and hang out and build community together. That's what flexing your muscles as a Christian might look, of course that's not like the only thing <laughs> it would look like. But the Christian hope is a future physical reality characterized by justice, beauty, community, Jesus, and we will finally be satisfied. And if that doesn't sound like a party, then I don't know what actually does sound like a party. What does it look like for you to begin to flex some of those muscles as a Christian? I don't know. I don't know. Um, it means beginning to develop your imagination. It means being a part of a community where we're having these conversations together. What would that look like for you? Living as a Christian means learning to imagine, not that there is no heaven, but that there is a heaven, that God lives there now, that it is his present, uh, present, ah, I totally blew it there. <laughs> I was just going to land it. <laughs> um, imagine that there is a heaven, that is God's, pre- the, the present dimension of God's current experience, that it's not somewhere far up, in the earth or in the sky well above the clouds but that heaven is here and that we can begin to experience a foretaste of what it would look like to live in light of heaven even while we're here on earth will you pray with me God thank you for this glorious picture of the future that you have laid out for us God, I pray that you would fill each of us this morning with the hope of what you will do for us because we are in Christ. And if there is any who has yet to come to Jesus, God, would you help us um, to respond to that longing that you have placed in our hearts? Would you help us to cry out and say, Jesus, if this is true, would you help me to know it? Would you help me to begin to live in light of the hope for what you will do for me in the future? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.